Welcome back to D&J's Epic Quest. I am Jay Rule, and alongside me here is... Derek Cronus. It is, it is uh, just us soldiering on today. No other foot soldiers joining us <laughs> for the first time in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been a minute. But um, how you been, dude? Good. Um, today was cold. We got some snow finally. I think maybe you guys got a little bit more up there than we did. Yeah, I want to say we had a good five inches. Oh shit! Yeah, we had like two. Um, yeah, today was pretty cold. I think it was like single digits, so haven't really had to deal with that too much this year at work. But yeah, things have been pretty good. How about you? Yeah, it's been it's been uh, weird. This is definitely the strangest winter I've experienced in my lifetime. Um, but outside of that, I realize and recognize that I am very out of shape, and uh, yeah, probably should stretch before I do any major movement anymore. Oh, did you hurt yourself? What happened? Oh, yeah. I didn't even get to that part. Yeah. So, you know, playing the the Ojibwe lacrosse today at work. And uh, I went to go for, like, you know, the puck or the ball or whatever it was. And I ended up, I don't, I don't even know how it all just happened so fast. But you know how, like, when you trip or fall and you or lose your balance and you just kind of, like, keep moving, keep going forward, trying to, like, catch yourself? Well, that's yeah, essentially what happened. Kind of slowly falling forward, right? right? Yeah, and eventually you just decide to hit the ground because you could keep going like that. At the first foot of my right foot planting, my like knee hyperextended. So yeah, it just <laughs> like cool. <laughs> first time I've been like that active in a long time, and I already fucked up myself. Well, that sucks. Yeah, I had a couple of weeks ago. I was it was. It was a Sunday because I had a hockey game in the morning and it was fine. You know, nothing happened. Uh, and my parents were out of town. And so I had to, um, I had to go pick up the dogs. And so I went, as I was leaving the house, I was putting on a jacket or something. I'm like, God, I got a freaking side ache. Well, it didn't go away for like two hours. I could feel it. So I must've just like strained a muscle like in my back. I don't know what I did. It didn't happen during hockey. I didn't do anything. I didn't do any other strenuous activity. It just happened. So, yeah, I feel you. We're getting older. You're you're the old man of the group. So, uh, yeah, those things just happen. <laughs> I like what? Less than a year, too, right? Uh, yeah, like what? Your Six birthday's months. September, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Like just about almost six months. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I'll be, I'll be 37 next month. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, 24th, right? Yeah. And yours is the fourth, right? Or third? Third. Third. Hey, I was right there. Even though it took me two guesses. I was, that was quick though. I knew it was in the beginning. Well, better than my parents do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not sure. I'm not sure to make it. I'm just, I'm just Josh and just playing around. All right. Well, I guess, should we kick it? Let's kick it. Let's do this. Let's do this. All right. Well, before we get started in today's episode, we'd like to take a moment to thank and recognize Silverstone's books. Please check out their website. Check out their storefront now. They do have a physical location. They have a large selection of fantasy, sci-fi, and horror books with many signed copies at very decent, reasonable prices. They've been gracious enough to give us a promo code for 10% off your next order. So that code is DJ Quest, all in capital letters. Check out their site, check out their store font, pick up a book, and save a little cash. Absolutely. And uh, something that's kind of cool is he's, Kevin's starting to get some authors into the bookstore to do signings. I know he's got one sometime in March. I don't remember who it was. He might even have two in March. And then in April, he's got, I remember this one because I have the book. Without looking, I think it's Rob Lee is his name, but the book is Pathfinder. And I know I mentioned to you, maybe we could finally get down there. Maybe that would be a good time to swing down. Um, I would bring my book and get it signed. So there you go. Do it up. Do yeah. it to ours. <laughs> All right. Our patrons. We have Jan, the picker of pies and good books. And we know Jan as well. He uh, he responded. He was busy with work and sick. So mm. uh, glad he's feeling better. Yeah, me Luciana too. Luciana haven't talked to Luciana much lately, but she has liked some of our stuff on Patreon. So that's always cool. Ryan, Topological, Damien, the Rock of Faces. Uh, Damien, get some comments from him from time to time. And I think... I don't know. Have we heard from Ryan? I don't think we've heard from Ryan in a while either. Nate, fiddled mm-hmm. me this. Talked to him not too long ago. Shield, Anvil, Dylan. Usually, I think he comments on YouTube quite a bit, but I don't know if I've seen any of his comments here lately. Yep. Also a fellow Minnesota resident. Yeah, maybe he's busy digging himself out of all the snow we got. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to shout out somebody from Facebook uh, on a, a post that uh, Nate actually tagged uh, tagged me in uh, at one point, but Ram Briss, and he was, I think from the sounds of it, he was struggling with some parts of Gardens of the Moon, and he found us and was listening and has made his listening experience better because he's going via audiobook, but English is not his first language. Hmm. Uh, so props, props to you, Ram. Um, and if I... Know my flags. I believe he is from France. Um, if that's not right, I'm sorry, Rom. <laughs> I think it's France's flag that he uh, commented with when we is were chatting. The, back is it there. the three stripes, the red, blue, and white? Uh, it is three stripes. It is blue, white, red. Yes, I'm pretty sure that's France. So if it's another country's flag, my apologies. But uh, it's cool that we know people around the world listen, but it's always cool to get that personalized touch like that. So uh when you get this far rom there's a little shout out for you awesome awesome thanks for the likes and the follow rom we really appreciate it absolutely and our other patrons we hope you guys are doing well things are going well for you and and not even only our patrons just anybody who happens to listen to us for sure absolutely it's always nice to know that we're not fucking up so 
<laughs> Not too bad, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, within the defined limits of fucking up, for sure. Right. But not fucking up so bad where it's just like, oh my god, what are you guys doing? Stop. Just stop. Quit it. Knock it off. You're done. You're done. Right. But yeah, man. Yeah. Should we start the, start this uh, very humorous chapter off? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go for it here. Uh, honestly, I kind of struggled with this chapter. I think I maybe kind of learned something about myself with this. Not maybe not myself, but the characters, and I can kind of explain as we go. But yeah, I would love to hear what you're talking about. And I, I feel I feel the same way. I definitely did struggle with this chapter, not because I didn't understand things that were going on, but just yeah. I mean, I guess we could talk about it as we get there. But sure, I feel definitely. like you and I are probably in the same boat. I'd be curious to find out if that is true, or yeah, if if there's something else going on. But we'll find out shortly. All right. Well, you want to take the epigraph here? Right. Yes. Um, chapter 11 of Malazan's Memories of Ice. Epigraph here. The Malazan military's vaunted ability to adapt to whatever style of warfare the opposition offered was, in fact, superficial. Behind the illusion of malleability, there remained a hard certainty in the supremacy of the imperial way. Contributing to that illusion of flexibility was the sheer resiliency of the Malazan military structure and a foundation bolstered by profound knowledge and insightful analysis of desperate and numerous styles of warfare. Abstract. Something 27. Book, is that 27? Thank you. 27, book 7, volume 9. On Tabal's 13-page treatise. Malazan Warfare, written by Annette Obar, The Lifeless. Interesting. I basically get... There huh? Oh, I was just asking if uh, if you had any insights there. Um, I basically feel like saying that the Malazan military is basically just bullshit. <laughs> That's kind of what I thought, too. Like, Because all we've heard so far is how, yeah, I, I guess adaptable they are. And this is just kind of saying otherwise, like, oh, they, they're just a bunch of pretenders, but uh, they really believe, you know, on whatever, whatever style the Imperial way is, but they know a lot of shit about right. other fighting styles. So exactly my thoughts. Well, um, we ready to jump into this, man. Ready to start off. Let's do it to it. All right. I felt like kind of throughout all my sections here, I, I didn't really have a ton of talking points, so um, we'll see what we pick off from one another as we go here. Sure. Spindle's shirt made of hair had caught fire. The smell was awful and caused everyone's eyes to water and burn. Picker watched Spindle stop, drop, and roll. And while everyone else laughed, she hosed him down with the water skin. He shouted that he was drowning while Hedge was laughing so hard he nearly fell into the flames. Picker told everyone to calm down before they were all burnt crispy. Blen said they were dying of boredom. Picker said that it was a poor excuse because if boredom were fatal, there wouldn't be a soldier alive in the world. She said it was simple. Starting with the sergeant, the whole company was insane. And she's crazier than a lot of them. If she was any sort of sane, she would have taken off a long time ago. She runs through the roster of each person in the company and their flaws, mentioning that Ansi thinks the gods themselves took Quickbin and that it's still Ansi's fault. Irritated, she struck a finger down stuck a finger down her torque and itched and said the gods don't give a damn about any of them, no matter what they do. Blend asked if the torques were bothering her, and she said to be careful. She wasn't in the mood. Spindle got up in a miserable mood. He said that there were malevolent spirits about. 
Picker said to mark them, and she'd carve them into his gravestone. That was a promise. Hedge said Spindle smelled like dog shit, and that not even a grease-smeared bargass would come near him. They needed to have everyone vote to bury that shirt somewhere. Ansi hushed them and said something or someone was out there. Picker trailed off, saying if it was that angry squirrel again. Spindle chimed in, saying he didn't do anything wrong, and nobody was doing nothing with his shirt. Well, he's still breathing anyways. That, and they didn't vote on anything in the ninth. Hood only knew what Whiskey Jack let them do, but they weren't in the ninth anymore. Ansi hushed them again, saying that someone was out there shuffling around. Something suddenly appeared before the sergeant. Hedge shouted that it was the bedroom bull and that it was Deteran's date. Picker punched him in the face and told him to get that thing out of here while Blend wanted to see 2,000 pounds of horns and cock. It was that's, just... Uh, that's right, because she was mad about it. But the 2,000 pounds of horns and cock is basically word for word from the book there. Picker said to shut it, uh, there were delicate ears present. Spindle said they had cussers they could throw as long as Hedge could aim straight. Deteran punched him in the face and asked if, and he asked if she could take a joke, then passed out. Picker said if he wasn't conscious by morning, she'd be lugging him along. Suddenly, Sunburnt Mallet was awake and asked who was hurt. He heard punching. The group explained what had transpired. Just then, the bull took off. Mallet asked what the hell that was. Blend said it was Hedge's rival and thought it had better odds elsewhere. Picker said things weren't looking great for the squad. The best mage disappeared, and they had a greenhorn for a captain, and Whiskey Jack is gone too. The company ain't what it used to be. They reminisced to Pale and their betrayal. Picker said she could deal with anything else but not betrayal. Blend agreed and said it had broken them. Blend said Trotz, if Tross lost his duel, maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing to have them all executed. She wasn't looking forward to this war. They had no one to trust and nothing to fight for and had Dujek to thank on both accounts. Blend detailed that she didn't think that Dujek was a renegade fist, only cut loose because of Brood and the Tyst Andy, and asked if Picker wondered who the new flag bearer was. Blend figured it was a claw that ranked high, though she didn't have proof. That, and they weren't renegades, they were doing the Empire's work. Picker asked Mallet how Hedge was doing. He said it was a concussion, but he was having problems accessing his Denual Warren. It seemed to be infected, and Spindle had the same problem, and whatever had poisoned the Warren can cross over. Picker seemed to ignore that and asked if he knew anything about the rumor of them not being renegade. He said that was a new one to him and sounded like something Ansi would make up. Picker said he'd love it when he hears it. She loves to make him panic. She told him to have Hedge ready to march in the morning in case Quick Ben shows up. So... Uh, you and I were texting earlier today, and uh, I told you I was rereading the chapter, and I told you there was something that I picked up uh, the second time reading the chapter, but I couldn't remember what it was, and it was right away here in the beginning. But I don't think that there would be any way that either of us would have caught this the first time through, because we just wouldn't know. But after reading this chapter and rereading a second time, uh, I mean, there's definitely some foreshadowing here about quick ben i don't know if you caught that or not which part specifically quick ben being picked off by the gods mm, gotcha because it happens just later on yeah moments yeah. later really that's true um, so really the the one thing i picked out of this section there's just tons of banter between all the squad mates bickering joking around you know just shit that 
like you would do with a team, you know, like I'm sure, you know, like men and women in the military probably mess with each other all the time. Maybe, maybe not to the extent of punching each other in the face, but you know, pulling little pranks and stuff like that, joking around, you know, they've got inside jokes, stuff like that. And all of this felt really authentic to me, just, I guess, from the a standpoint of, you know, I've not, again, I've not been in the military, but I mean, I, I play on an adult league hockey team. Um, and, you know, a lot of these guys I've, I, you know, I've known, uh, some of them I haven't, you know, and you just become friends and everybody's just joking around, you know, kind of like, to, to some degree like this. So it, it makes sense to me. The one thing that I told, like I struggled with in this chapter, I like the bridge burners. I like the squad. What I don't like is, or I'm not enjoying yet, maybe is the better way to put it, is I don't like everybody talking. <laughs> I don't, I feel like I don't need, you know, the, the dialogue from all these other people. I don't know. I don't really know how to explain it. And it's maybe it's just kind of the writing style, but sometimes it's hard to know who's talking. And like, I want to know, like, who's saying this. And I mean, as you saw in my typing here, I, I messed up a name as far as who said what. And that's kind of the thing that I struggle with. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way about everything that you just said. Uh, the camaraderie uh, is just amazing, you know, but. Uh, whereas you struggle with the the conversations that are happening and maybe there's too much, I feel like it's giving me a more sense of who these characters are, their personality, and just kind of like, I wouldn't say character development because I don't know if there's really things developing outside of you're starting to get a basis for how these characters work. And I think through that is when you start to kind of see them as distinct characters within the squad. Uh, which makes their conversations jump a little bit more out because you associate with what they say to that personality, if that makes any sense. So I feel like I'm actually getting to know these guys a little bit better because in Gardens of the Moon and not even really in, in Dead House Gates at all, like they're mentioned, but they're not really, they, you know, the personalities aren't really explored. They're just yeah, kind of, I think missed. it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I guess like, it's not like I, I don't want to get to know who they are. It's just, I'm, I'm not used to that. I mean, we've had quite a few characters throughout the two books we've completed and this partial one, but I don't feel like we've had such like a big grouping of them together. Right. Uh, you know, at one time. And so it's, I don't necessarily know that it's jarring. It's just kind of unfamiliar. And it's just in, in when I'm reading it in my head, it's just kind of all one voice. Sure. Well, I mean, it's definitely the next level. I mean, at this point, I would imagine that Erickson, when he's writing this, has the subconscious thought that, oh, well, the reader has made it through the first and second one, so I can level this up a little bit. Sure. I think that's yeah, kind yeah. of what is happening here. But, you know, uh, again, I, you know, there, I didn't, I loved everything that I read in the section, but it's not like I had anything to like distinctly call out or point out because it is just a group of bridge burners joking and fucking around with each other, you know? Yeah. And maybe now that I'm thinking about it, like, yeah, there, I didn't have much to talk about here, but uh, like, what the hell happened? That spindle caught fire. Like we, we're talking about it now because I'm bringing it up, but like, it's just one of those things like what either of us have 
brought that up. <laughs> I don't maybe I, not. I don't know. I mean, I mean, from what I remember, it was just a spark that flew from the flames and you know, hair is pretty damn compost combustible, you know, even under oh, is that the, all it was? Yeah. I mean he he it was really an abstract way to say it. It was like he described it as like a, a spark, like a booger being flicked, you know, um, is kind of, oh yeah, you know, it just kind of like popped out from the fire and, you know, thus ensued chaos. But digging a little deeper, you know, there's a lot of like superstitions kind of talk going on. And I forget who mentions it, but they're like, I think it was Spindle saying there's malevolent spirits abound. I mean, is it possible that the spirits are fucking with them? Is there maybe a deeper level to this? I, I mean, who knows? I think you're right. I think it was Spindle. Yeah, I, possible. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but I mean, outside of the the amazing character interactions, the only really thing that uh, the two points that I had was our Tanthos gets brought back up again, and he is the like newest standard bearer or whatever uh to brood's army i forget his exact title but i think it's funny that he's getting brought up now and we've already had mention of him being quote unquote like quote unquote suspicious there's something familiar about him but nothing's really been revealed so i'm curious if you just think that maybe he is like an undercover claw you know i, I don't, don't know how i feel on that i'm not sure gotcha and then i mean the other the other thing is related to the Artanthos potentially being an undercover claw. And that is they're kind of talking about, you know, them being renegade uh is potentially just a rumor, right? You know, I was kind of under the assumption based on the end of Deadhouse Gates when Kalam has that conversation with you know, Lucine inside of the dead body, remember? Uh, yep. how they were all like, well, you know, it's just a, it's just for show, right? Like they're not actually, they're not actually like alienated, you know, Kalam was under the impression that they were, you know, cast out renegades from the empire. And Lucine says that, no, that's essentially just a feint. But now, I mean, they're talking about this. It's clearly traveled down to these levels of, of soldiers so you know whether they think it's true or not i mean i guess it doesn't really matter but it's definitely being heard and talked about. right so it's possible that Artantos is an undercover claw because they're not really renegades anymore i don't think i would be too terribly surprised if he was just because like why should we be surprised at much in this book there's dinosaurs with swords for arms <laughs> so so i mean maybe it's topper in disguise or something you know, mm, not quick Ben in disguise. No, he's not that quick to be two people at once in the same spot. No, he is just not this person. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> nice jab at me. <laughs> you gotta take him when I can get him. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like picker. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't have any other thoughts for that section. I don't know if you do. No, let's uh, keep her going here. All right. Another little shorty. There were a lot of short ones mixed with some pretty long ones. I got the longest one again in this one. And I did well. I managed to summarize it in like a page and a half or so. Yeah. So yeah, I, th I was just thinking, yeah, you did have a, the longest one. Yeah, I think it was like 11 pages or something. But uh, hands clawed, rotted, stained energy. Quick Ben dragged himself from his warren, 
gagging on the sickly taste that was left in his mouth. The mage staggered forward, halting when the night's air flowed into his lungs, waiting for his thoughts to clear. The last half a day had been spent struggling to exit Hood's warren, even though it was the least poisoned warren amongst those he commonly used. The thought made him feel deprived and stripped of power. Quick observed a line of hills off in the distance, and a faint orange glow bathed the nearest hill. Quick Ben sighed. He had been unable to establish any sorcerer's contact with anyone since the beginning of his journey. Quick has some thoughts to himself about how Paran has left him a squad, and that was better than he could have hoped for. However, he wondered how many days they had been lost. Quick was supposed to be Trot's backup if things went south. He stepped forward, still fighting the lasting effects of the Hood's infected Warren. He thinks to himself that this has been the work of the crippled god. Sorcery is what struck him down, so the crippled god has waged war on sorcery itself, taking it out of his enemy's hands. He tells, he tells himself that he can sniff out feints and the panion. Well, that is definitely one. And somehow, the crippled god has found a way to release the floodgates of the Warren of Chaos. He wonders if the panion's domain knows that they are being used. A game designed to test the will of the crippled god's opponents. His thoughts tell him that he needs to take out the pawn, the Panion Domen, as soon as possible. He approached the squad's firelight and heard a low mutter of voices and felt that he was coming home. So it's definitely a kind of ending Quick's journey through Hood's Warren, uh, kind of after releasing Telemandus from the glyphs and the wards and the bindings of the necromancers and transitioning him to linking back up with picker and blend and spindle and hedge and mallet and stuff nice to see him reunited and now antsy can stop freaking out about it what was he doing before because i don't remember was was chapter 10 no that was i was just thinking like when was the chapter with all talk that was a couple episodes ago i don't remember what quick ben was doing last episode last chapter or last time we saw him, if it's been more than one. Uh, the last time we saw him, I believe, was Chapter 8, at the end of Chapter 8. What was he doing? I don't even remember. I've got the memory of a goldfish here. Freeing, That's why we're documenting this. <laughs> right. He was freeing Telemandus from the Boshalane and Corporal Brooch's bindings. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I, I, you know, Again, a very short section. A couple of things that I wanted to, to, to call out was... This part where Quick was supposed to be Trotz's backup if things went south. And I feel like that was kind of a an aha, right? To tell the clan about their forefathers from the conversation that Telemandus had when Quick released the Six Snare from his bindings, right? Like, that was what Telemandus wanted him to do. I Sure. I'm, I'm not going to disagree. <laughs> I know you don't remember much of Telemandus. I don't know why. I mean, he's such an interesting character. I mean, he's a little stick figure with an acorn head. Like, you know, I okay. just... That's, he's, he's Groot. That's what he is. He's Groot. Uh -huh. He just talks more. <laughs> right, exactly. Except he can he say probably doesn't, his name. Yeah, he can say other things, and he probably doesn't dance as good. Probably not. And then the other thought that I had is, uh, quick, Ben is kind of like explaining... The crippled god had found a way to release the floodgates of the Warren of Chaos. And I'm wondering, is this in relation to the Panion? Or is this saying that the Warren of Chaos is poisoning the other Warrens? 
Is that what he is that what the crippled god is using to poison the other Warrens is the Warren of Chaos? Um I don't know. I mean, don't you think it makes a little bit of sense that it's the the Panion that's doing it? Because if they're far enough away, there doesn't seem to be problems. Well, I think that what he's saying is the Panion Domen is the distraction, but the real war is against sorcery. As far as like the crippled god's motivation is concerned. Yeah, I agree with that. I guess I thought you're saying, you know, is it the Warren of Chaos that's causing, you know, the sickness or whatever for the other Warrens, or is it the Panion? Maybe I just didn't understand your question. Um, I, I'm not sure I understand it now either. I, I guess, is it... I'm making things worse. It's not what uh, I'm trying to do. No, it's fine. Uh, again, you know, I mean, not everything's obviously going to be revealed to us, and that's fine. I know that these are like little snippets, but uh, I think that what Quick Ben has surmised is that the Panion Domain is the distraction while the crippled god goes after the sorcery. I guess my question is, is it the Warren or is it the Warren of Chaos that is poisoning the other Warren or is it something else? I don't think it's the Warren of Chaos because then I feel like it wouldn't matter where you were at Anytime you tried to use your warn, it would feel sickly or tainted, whatever terminology you want to use. But like the vibe I'm getting is like once you're within a certain proximity to the panty and dome is where that starts to happen. That's yeah. how I've taken it when I've read stuff. See, I guess I, I didn't think it was that specific. I thought it was like just anytime you opened your panty and or anytime you opened your warren. You know, it's it's hard to say. I know that there was a part with Lady Envy and, and Cruel where they were saying... You know, when you get closer to the Panny and Domen, blah, 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 blah. So maybe that's how that right. works to associate those two. I mean, that's how I took it. So, I okay, well then let's just go with that until we're proven wrong. Oh, I'm not saying I'm right. I mean, <laughs> that's, no, I'm that's saying just how I right. interpreted things. <laughs> no, I'm saying you are right. That makes sense. So let's okay. just go with that until... I know, weird, right? Like, agreeing after not agreeing, and then, not that we weren't agreeing, but just, you know, different perspectives, so. Right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I don't have any other things to talk about in that very, very short section. All right, we'll keep things moving here. Section three. A thousand skulls with burning braids and stakes were raised in the air. Near Paran, young warriors fought each other with knives, while female Bargas took male and female alike to the tents. While Paran thought to try and stop this from happening, he didn't have the manpower to enforce it, and they may all be dead tomorrow anyways. All the clans had gathered on the valley floor. Paran guessed approximately 100,000 Bargast had come to Humbrel Tower's call, but they had also come to answer Trot's challenge as he was the last of his tribe, and on his body, he has his clan's history tattooed. A warrior nearby shrieked and died, Cheers turned to hisses as Twist appeared at Paran's side. Paran said he was not too popular here and that he didn't know Moranth hunted this far east. He said they do not, but the hostile feelings are born of memory, not experience, and the memories are false. Paran suggested not giving them that opinion. Twist agreed, saying there is no point, and asked if Trotz was a skilled fighter. Paran said he's never actually seen him fight, but he's been in some nasty scraps before. He can hold his own. Twist asked after the bridge burners who had seen him fight. Paran said they were biased and they'd soon find out anyways. Twisted Tower had chosen his champion, one of his sons. 
Pran wanted to know where he got that info. Did he understand the Bargas language? Twist said their language was related to theirs, but the news was all anyone talked about. Tower's youngest son, still unnamed, two moons before his death night. He is undefeated in duels and shows no mercy. Pran said he didn't even know why they needed a duel. Trot's claim is on his skin. That should be enough. Twist said he makes a claim for leadership. His tribe's history is that of the first founders. His blood purer than the blood of these clans, so he must challenge to affirm his status. Pran did not feel well, his stomach in knots. He thought about the cavern below the finnest house, the carved flagstones and the deck of dragons, and if he closed his eyes, he would feel himself falling into the hold of the beast, the home of the Tlanimus. He thought about the throne he saw there and how it was still waiting. Twist noticed he was not feeling well and asked after him. Pran said his stomach was unsettled, and Twist said he understated it, but would pry no further. Pran said he needed a favor, unless he and his quarrel were too tired. Twist said they were rested and to ask, and it would be done. Yeah, another another shorty, you know. I, I definitely yeah. get the, the sense of, like, tensions are continuing to rise. I know that that was a big theme in the last chapter. And that seems to be a theme here, but just under different circumstances. Yeah. Um, one thing I'm kind of, like, I'm kind of interested and curious about is we've had a few people ask, you know, after the number of the bargain asked, what the fuck is Hatan? Hatan's the daughter, right? Yep. You know, somebody somebody asked her, you know, oh, if the Bargast united and they marched to Capistan, how many would there be? And she said 70,000. It's not going to happen. It doesn't matter. So you guys are fucked. Right. So now I'm wondering, is she understating it? Because Paran is, I mean, again, and it's approximate, you know, 100,000 people here. But we know not all the Bargasts are here. There's some that didn't come. All the clans are represented, but not every single one is, every single Bargast is there. So how many of them are there really? It's kind of what I'm starting to wonder. Um, a formidable force against the Panians. Uh, well, I mean, probably not on their own. I mean, they, as things stand right now, even let's just call it 100,000 Bargast, they're still outnumbered almost two to one from what we know so far. Because right. there's roughly 100,000 Teneskauri and 80,000 just other troops. Sure, but they're also not... Something that the Kelpath or whatever, Kalpath, you know, the Septarch of the Panian army, that would be a third thing that he is not accounting for. Oh, oh if they join the fight, yes. Yeah. But I if, mean, they just, if they they're just, not, yes, yeah. They're not trapped inside of Capistan. So, but maybe that's not a good thing because I feel like if you're outnumbered, you're, if you're castle or city, whatever, that's, I don't know. If you're outnumbered, would you rather be behind a wall or would you rather be in the open field? I mean, I'd rather be in an open field with the enemy not suspecting me and they have their back towards me. But I'm I'm thinking, like what I'm thinking is if the Panian Doman just marched on the Bargast. Gotcha. So you think that that should be their strategy instead of taking Capistan first? Uh, no, not necessarily. That's just like, it's a what if, I guess, is all I'm thinking. Got it. That's all. all. Right. Because obviously, obviously, yeah. Like if they if they take the city, I mean, their numbers are gonna they're gonna take a hit in their numbers. But yeah, it's just like, well, what if they just went straight for the the bar guest? I, I think, don't know. I think I would. I'd rather be in a defensible structure than out in the open field. Fair enough. But also, I mean, and I'm sure this is information that the Panians don't know about, or 
are just unaware of, but getting them before they have an opportunity to unite the clans probably would have been ideal for them. Oh, great point. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and maybe that's kind of what Erickson is hinting at is that like, you know, even though this is like an all powerful, you know, uh, Panny and Doman army, that there are definitely some unseen flaws and you know, maybe it's just coincidence. I don't think that the Bargast are not going to unite. I very well could be wrong. You know, as we know that Erickson likes to subvert our expectations, it definitely kind of feels like Trotz is going to be have a say on the, the council of leaders here, and that uh, for some way, shape, or form, they'll be able to uh, accomplish what they need to accomplish in Capistan, which is something we could talk about when we get there yeah i th- I mean just from what we learned in this chapter i th- i think the bargas will probably end up going to capistan to some capacity i mean right now i don't see how they don't right maybe they, they don't maybe want to and it's and it's i think it'll be a deal where it's like okay we're we're here to kill the panians we're not here to help you <laughs> helping you is just kind of like a it's going to be a byproduct of killing the panians right and I mean, it's not like the Bargasts are dumb. They are totally aware of the threat. They just are uh, stubborn, you know? Right. So, yeah. Uh, my only, I guess, point that I had in here is where Twist is saying that, uh, you know, the hostile feelings between the Bargast and the Moranth are born of memory, not experience, and the memories that they have are incorrect. I thought that was just kind of interesting. Right, because we're getting like two sides of the coin, right? You know, so yep. now it's kind of like you're questioning it. Are the uh, Moranth, you know, are there, what am I trying to word? Or the Vargas assumptions of the Moranth incorrect? But I, I did have. Twist is saying, so right. that is the case, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it, it's such a real world thing to talk about, right? I mean, take any religion, any religion. Right. And the bickering amongst, you know, the ones that disagree the most Christianity and atheism. Right. That's essentially atheism really a religion, though. I mean, it's the belief in something not existing. So So I I mean, I'm just using it as an example because they're the most polar opposite. And I don't have any other experience in any other religions. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, I'm just I'm just saying that memories are false right and i think that this is really kind of what erickson is trying to tell us is that at one point in time we were all connected but then as through the generations we've forgotten we have lost what it means to be this group of people or this culture or this religion and even though we all came and stemmed from the same place we are now segregated and divided from each other because we have forgotten where we came from good point so but uh, on a side note, not really related um, to anything that we're talking about here, but just kind of related to what they're talking about. And uh, the Bargast are upset with the Moranth because they essentially kind of accepted the Tisti or the Tisti doers way of life, so to speak, you could say it. Like they looked up to them in some way, shape or form. But going alongside of that, I was thinking about this the other day and the hounds of shadow, right? I know that we've always kind of like wondered where they came from. Do you think that they were once 
working for the Tistidur, being it that was the Warren that Shadow Throne took over? Do you think that they're like hounds created by Mother Dark? Uh, why would she need them? I don't know. I'm just I'm just spitballing here. I was just thinking about it. I'm like, that's just my first question. You know, why would she need it? Obviously, there's a ton we don't know. So I I I don't know. What what purpose would they serve for her? I don't know. To maybe like stop the feuding between her children. I mean, like, hey, here's some puppies. I don't know. Because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I'm laughing because my mind went such a different direction than what you just said. Because I'm thinking you're like, oh, I'm going to send my kids some puppies so they behave. And I'm it, like that seems to be what you thought or how I interpreted what you're saying. And my brain was like, I'm going to send some dogs to kill my kids. <laughs> yeah, no, I was not going that dark. Damn, dude. Damn. That's funny. Uh, it was funny. But yeah. All right. Well, yeah, it's just interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know why that that part reminded me of of the hounds, but I just I don't know. I think about this world on a daily basis, even when I'm not reading. It's like always inside my mind you know yeah oh, i I'm th- i think about you know the chapter that we've that we're reading and then when we get you know i, I think about what we'll talk about when we get stuck about <laughs> very true well i don't know about you but i'm ready to move on if you are yep all right the sun was starting to rise and the color bathed the eastern horizon Rand was tired and cold huddling beneath his blanket he observed the various clans in the encampment filling the valley Whiskey Jack's briefing had been brief, but he had given Paran the heads up on which clans to watch out for. Among the clans, Humbral Tor's closest rival was the war chief Maral Ebb of the Baran clan, who had arrived in strength over 10,000. There was the risk that Morale Maral might contest Humbral's position. Fifty duels had taken place the night prior between the Baran clan and Humbral's own Sanan clan. Outside of the major clans, there were several smaller tribes that contributed to the whole of the white-faced nation. With the long-standing feuds amongst the many clans, Paran was surprised at how well Humbral had maintained the peace for the last four days. Paran thought to himself that today was the day that they would either live or die. He pushed that last thought away and a voice wailed to greet the dawn, and suddenly the camps were alive, slowly making their way towards the challenge ring. Haran glanced over and saw his bridge burners stirring. The captain knew that if it came to it, they wouldn't go down without a fight. The captain looked to the sky to see if Twist and his quarrel were returning, but Paran couldn't see anything but clear blue skies. A silence amongst the bargast caused Paran to turn and see Humbral Tor striding through the throng to take his position in the center of the ring. The war chief wasted no time with words, and with some gestures of his weapon and a small interruption, Trot stepped through the crowd to take his position. Paran saw that Trotz was wearing a standard issue of a Malazan soldier. Humbral turned the opposite dire- direction and gestured once more with his mace. His youngest son entered the ring. Paran thought to himself that he was unimpressed by the appearance of Humbral's youngest son. Bargas warriors on all sides began thumping their feet on the hard earth. Humbral's son entered the arena and took place opposite of Trot's. Captain was heard beside Paran. The captain turned and saw Corporal Aimless and asked the corporal what he could do for him. Aimless, seeming kind of timid to ask, asked what would happen if the scrap went bad. Paran tells him to stow it. 
and his plans haven't changed. Amos bobbed his head, and with more hesitation, he admits to Paran that there are nine, maybe ten bridge burners that will do whatever they want and to hood with the captain. Paran pulled his gaze away from the two bar gas and told Amos that he was the mouth, and those about to rebel were watching the pair speak, and exactly, and that's exactly how they wanted it. Paran says that in this instance, he probably should kill the messenger and rid himself of the stupidity. Amos conveys that the last captain that had threatened him ended up with a broken neck. Paran raised his eyebrows at this and told Amos to try and show some restraint this time and to go back and tell the others to wait until his signal. He went, he won't, we won't go down without a fight, but if we try breaking out when the Bargast expects us to, then that is for sure the quickest way we'll die. Amos asked if he wanted to say all that. Paran said yes, and even in his own words, if he pleased. Paran turned his attention back to the ring. Humbrel Tor was between the two warriors, and they started to step back, and he started to step back. Once he reached the edge, he waved the mace one final time above his head. The duel had begun. Paran watched as the blade in the youth's hand started to make motions. Trotz raised his sword in a defense stance, but did not move forward. Paran thought to himself that the more this youth does, the more Trotz is able to figure out how this youth reacts to certain motions, etc. The youth used his speed and agility to lash at Trotz. Trotz met the attack low with his shield and then suddenly surged forward, rendering the youth strike worthless. The youth struck the ground, skidding to a halt. A fool would have pursued, as the youth's knife had been ready for a slash. Instead, Trotz just settled behind his shield. Pran thought to himself that the Bargast youth was not used to this style of fighting. The lithe Bargast got up and began to awkwardly dance and shift his weight in order to lure Trotz to strike. Trotz ignored every feint. The crowd around the dueling Bargast began shouting their frustration, as this was not a duel they were used to seeing. Trotz was not giving in to the game the youth was playing. The youth launched another attack, attempting to slash low. The boy was met with a shield to his face. The youth reeled, sending his hook blade around and managing to catch the hinge of the armor on Trotz's left arm. Trotz's sword came down and severed the hand of the youth. Blood poured from both warriors. Paran watched in amazement as the youth's hands shot upward getting underneath Trot's chin's guard. A strange popping noise came from Trot's throat. The Bargaff's final gesture as his shield fell away was a horizontal swipe that cut through the lad's stomach. The youth looked down to see his intestines spill out before falling to the ground. Trot's lay before the dying boy, pawing frantically at his throat. The captain lurched forward, but Mulch, a minor healer from the 11th squad, raced into the circle to Trot's side. A small flick blade, flick blade flashed in the soldier's hand as he straddled Trot's. Pandemonium broke out on both sides. Bargas warriors surged forward. Paran saw his bridge burners contracting within the ring of Bargas. He thought to himself that this was it. It was all about to go down. And then a horn was heard, and the Sanan warriors were reasserting the sanctity of the circle. Tor had his mace raised as a call for silence. Paran saw Granados in the hands of his bridge burners. He told them all to stand down. He told Amos to go find out what Mulch had done. Paran was going to visit Humbrol Tor. 
Moran made his way through the crowd. He glanced to his right and saw that Mulch was attending to the wound in Trotz's arm, but Trotz had stopped thrashing. But Paran could see slight movement, so he knew that the bridge burner had not died. Somehow, Mulch had given Trotz the means to breathe. Tor called out to Paran, saying that they must speak. Umbral Tor told the crowd to move along so they could speak. The conversation starts off with Tor saying that Paran's soldiers think little of the captain, and Tor suggests that Paran kill one or two to send a message. Paran says that he's new, and it was normal, and his job was to keep them alive, and that was it. Tor changes the subject to speak of Trots and how his fighting style is not kin to them. He explains that this unnamed son was has won 23 straight duels, and he's lost one of his own blood and a great warrior. Paran said that Trots still lived. Umbral says that Trots should be dead. He wonders if Paran thinks that Trots will live. The captain says that he's unsure and that he'd have to consult his healer. They speak a bit more about whether to wait or not before Paran pulls away, fighting a resurgence of pain. He strode towards Trotz. Paran saw between Trotz's collarbone was a hole and some hollow bone tube that was whistled softly as Trotz took breath. Paran asked what in the hell he was seeing. Mulch explained that it that with the Warrens the way that they are right now, and besides, he wasn't really that good anyway, it was a cutter trick that he had learned from Bullet when he was in the 6th. Paran stated that it looks temporary. Mulch agreed and said that they need Mallet. Paran calls Aimless over and tells him to make sure no Bargas get close to Trots. And when Mulch gives the word, make sure that Trots gets back to their camp and get some soldiers down here. Pran watched the soldier scampered off and then faced south and scanned the, scanned the sky. Pran sighed and cursed. Mulch puts it together that the captain had sent to find them and that he sees a passenger and it's likely Quick Ben. Pran smiled and said to Mulch, not if Twist followed his orders. Mulch put it together that it was Mallet that Pran had sent Twist to go pick up. Pran met the healer's gaze and told him that nobody dies on this mission. I guess a lot happens, right? Like we get, we get kind of what I would call the uh, the peak of the chapter, right? I would agree. But you know, when when the section first starts off, Bran is saying that uh, Whiskey Jack's briefing had been like short, and maybe this is just me not remembering. But was this before Paran departed? That Whiskey Jack kind of gave him the lay of the land as far as which clans to look out for, or did they have like a meet? A meeting through some type of sorceress communication. I'm not sure. I imagine it was just something that happened off page. Okay. That, I mean, that's what I, I obviously figured, but I wasn't I wasn't sure, and I just thought it was weird. Yeah, I don't remember them really talking about that, so I figured it was something just that took place. Sure. Um, the other thing that I thought was kind of cool was uh, Humbrol Tor's judgment of what Trotz is wearing in this ring, because like it's all Malazan garb, right? And it's almost kind of that like traditional mindset and the kind of the judgment that goes along with it. You know what I mean? Kind of like if you have traditional views, when you see someone who doesn't share those traditional views, you, you judge them, right? They're, it's different. Right. Yes, exactly. But even as like Trotz enters the ring, low growls were heard amongst the crowd of the Bargas. So even though they dispute among themselves, 
they still share the same main ideas based on the way that they're reacting there. Hmm, I did not catch that. There still is some type of unity there. There still are shared traditions amongst the clans, even though they have disputes amongst themselves. I guess it makes sense. I mean, they don't like the Malazan, so, I mean, they might not like each other between their clans, but it sounds like they just, they'll all hate the Malazans. Right. Right. I mean, and I think it's pointed out later in the chapter that kind of gets brought up. Um, One of the other things that I thought was cool is just how Captain Paran and, like, this aimless interaction... And Paran is just like, you know what? We won't go down with the fight. However, here's some fucking logic for you. The Bargast expect <laughs> us to leave, you know? like, And when we do exactly what they think, they're going to kill us. So let's just wait and see what our options are, right? And it's funny because I know that he fears this. And maybe fear is not the right word, but predicted this earlier on in the book that the bridge burners would try to stab him in the back. And I think though, that he handled it well, maybe even got a little bit of the reverse thinking on these bridge burners that want to defy his orders. This uh, interaction makes me think of a meme that I saw not too long ago. That is completely unrelated. Well, kind of Paran's telling him like, Hey, we'll fight if we have to, but if we don't need to, we're not gonna, it's kind of the gist of it. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't even remember where I saw this. It was Facebook, Twitter, whatever. I don't know. But it, was, it said something to the effect of, don't fight if you don't have to. But if you got to fight, fight like you're the third monkey trying to get onto Noah's Ark and it's starting to rain. Right. Yep. It's a good meme. <laughs> I just, a good meme. <laughs> like, it's just funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, and I, I feel like we get to this part in the section where... Paran is kind of thinking to himself as he's observing this duel between Tor's youngest son and Trots and Tor's young Tor Tor. I don't even know how to say his name. He his youngest I was son say Tower Tower. I yeah, I, I don't know. Tower, whatever. Fuck it. Whatever. It doesn't call Big T. Right, Big T, because that rhymes with something else. Um, what I see? Big, Big D, Big T. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I, again, not, not, I didn't know where my mind was going. Clearly, we're on different wavelengths tonight. <laughs> oh, good. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, it's fine. It's, you know, when they're facing off against each other in the duel, he was very unused to Trotz's style of fighting. And while the Malazan armor and fighting style is wanted and somewhat misunderstood by the Bargas clans, Trotz has like has embraced a different style of living. He is not your standard Bargast, right? Correct. So he's not like the Bargast because he's embracing change. Trotz, in, and this is kind of what makes me think, you could call this foreshadowing or whatever, but this is kind of what makes me think that Trotz is likely going to end the era of the Bargast where they as a culture don't move forward and potentially start to embrace change. This is what makes me think, going back to our earlier conversation, um, because he's not your typical Bargast. He's got ties to the Founding Fathers, which, as we kind of continue on in this chapter, had their own struggle with the current Bargast clans, right? 
So I think that him being able to take up a position of power, kind of claim his his territory, so to speak, even though he's clanless, you know, kind of similar to Unas Tolan. But yeah, I, I just I think that he's going to kind of make people realize that, you know what, like you have to embrace change. Otherwise, you forget shit. You forget who you are. You forget where you came from. I think that's a really good take. And I think I agree with you. I can see that. I I did not think about that at all. This duel, I don't know how you felt when you were reading it, but I was like, no way Trotz is going to lose this, right? And then I'm I'm reading through it. And I'm like, holy fuck. I don't know if he's going to live. Like, uh-huh. I wasn't expecting it to be a, a tie, basically. But um, I thought this, this section, this duel, really brought me back to the epigraph of this chapter. I don't know if you felt the same way. No, I... I, I see where you're going, but in the moment, no, I did not. Gotcha. Just, yeah, like his fighting style, because Tower's son is, I guess, I don't know what you'd want to call it, just like a guerrilla fighter, right? Like, kind of just, you know, whatever it takes to win kind of deal. And Trotz is just very disciplined and by the book, you know, with his, his stance. Like, it's just military, you know, it's just, just drilled into him. Like, you know, don't turn your back to the guy, you know, all like this shit whatever you know i don't know but clearly he's had this stuff drilled into him like this is the way you do things like this is how you stay alive this is this is how you beat the enemy you do it this way you do it this way if this happens you do this you then you do this and you just kind of see that maybe just think like compare him to like a like a like a roman soldier or something is kind of what i felt like yeah i mean i could totally see that yeah and then he ends up getting his fucking throat just bashed in, right? <laughs> yeah. Crumpled. And so it's only a tie when he dies. So now there's this like sense of urgency to it, right? Like, oh, fuck. You know, our lives are in danger. We're about to get like fucking slaughtered. We have to do everything that we can to keep Trots alive, you know? Right. And I, and maybe you. I, got thoughts on this but i kept wondering why are they allowing why are the bar guests allowing this to happen i mean because they outnumber him so badly they could just get in the way and be like no he's gonna suffocate he's gonna die why are they letting them heal him i think because they don't want to tie either okay i mean i guess yeah if if they both die then you're gonna have like two other guys go (laughs) you know you're gonna pick another two champions to go at it i guess yeah yeah i don't know i guess that makes sense yeah, uh, yeah. So, yeah, and I think we'll talk about it and just kind of how he was saved. But uh, I think that Paran uh, got some mad respect among his soldiers at the end of this this chapter, or not this chapter, this section, and kind of is maybe starting the foundation of building that loyalty that Dujek and Whiskey command by saying that nobody dies on this mission. Like he's making it personal his personal mission to make sure that nobody dies. And I think that like, as a soldier hearing like a commander say that you're like, Oh, that includes me. So it would help put things at ease a little bit. Right. And make me not want to put a knife in his back (laughs) for now. Right. Exactly. But uh, a very long, long scene, definitely better reading it than summarizing. But yeah, I, I don't have any other thoughts. Like I said, I think, the tie, the duel, um, some of the surrounding symbolism between the duel. 
is really kind of the the higher points of the section. Yeah, I I mean, like when when it was coming up, I felt pretty relaxed. I'm like, okay, I don't I don't know how this is going to work out, but like Travis is going to win. And then it, I mean, it kind of put me on my head a little bit by the fact that you know he he just about died too, and you're reading this, you're like, okay, well he could still die. He might not make it out of this, and so now you're kind of sweating it out a little bit. So yeah, it was good. I liked it. Sweet. Well, uh, if you are, I'm ready to move on. Yep. Picker asked Quick Ben if they needed to get someone to carry him. Quick Ben said no. It was getting better. The Vargas spirits were thick here and getting thicker, and they're resisting the infection. He'd be fine soon. Soon enough. Picker said if he was sure, but he looked in rough shape. Quick Ben said Hood's Warren is never a fun place to be. Picker said that didn't sound great. What do they have to look forward to then? Quick Ben said nothing. Picker replied, saying to wait until Ancy found out. Quick Ben said she only did that to make him squirm. Picker said the squad needed entertainment. The squad had seen no other person since Twist had visited that morning, and they knew the duel had taken place, but they didn't know the outcome. Picker thought they could be walking to their own executions. The squad was in strung out shape and not in the shape to fight back. The landscape was desolate, and by Twist's estimation, the Bargas camp was roughly four leagues away. If things went well, they'd be there by sundown. Quick Ben grunted, and when Picker turned, she saw hands covered in dirt grabbing his legs. He was pulled down, bony fingers pulling him under the earth. Picker grabbed onto him, trying to keep him above the ground, but he told her to let him go before she pulled his arm off. Quick Ben went fully under. Moments later, Ancy was on the scene with a shovel sending dirt into the air. Picker told him to stop before he took off the top of his head. In a panic, he said he didn't see any blood. Maybe hair. Was that hair? Spindle called him an idiot and said it was roots, not hair. They were ambushed by Bargas spirits, and they got Quick Ben. Ancy, still panicking, said he wasn't dangerous enough to be taken, at least not yet, and he wanted to get off the barrel and wanted to know what to do next. Picker said they would wait a couple hours. If he didn't dig his way out, they'd leave him behind. She said it's either that or they level the whole damn hill, and they wouldn't find him anyways. They took him into his, their warren. Ancy said mages were worthless. Couldn't count on them for anything. They may as well pack up and get moving. Picker said it wouldn't hurt to w- wait a little while. Ancy changed his tune and agreed. Picker said they could use some food. Ancy said he'd get right on it. Picker couldn't help but think how fast Ancy was losing his mind. Another transitional section, right? Like, it's just, you know, moving things along. Twist has found him. Quick Ben is in tow. He looks like shit. And then he's taken by Bargain Spirits. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I, I don't, I, again, there's more banter here, you know, between the Bargas, like, you know, just kind of, you know, the last section was pretty heavy, you know, um, and then here it's just like, oh, well, you just really love to piss Ancy off because, you know, the group needs entertainment, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, but I didn't, I yeah. didn't major thoughts for this section. Like you said, transitional, but like Quick Ben being taken is like kind of a big deal because I mean they don't really know what's going to happen to him. But true, you know when when he's being drug under and he tells him to let go of him, that's just got to be screaming against every instinct in your body. Like I feel like you'd be like, pull me the fuck out of here, not let me go. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I guess now that we're talking, about hard, that, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now that we're talking about that particular part. I remember the first time I read it, I didn't think that it was Bargas spirits. I thought that it was Burns like servants, like what happened earlier on in the book. 
oh, being gotcha. pulled back down for some more. Yeah, I don't know, like a check in or something, but that obviously sure. happened. But like that was my initial thought as I'm reading that particular part. Gotcha. My only other thought here on this section is in regards to ANSI and just. The more I read of Ansi, the more and more I just imagine him as Hudson from Aliens. And just like in Aliens, Hudson, you know, he's he's freaking out because he's supposed to be out in like a few months or something. He's he's out of the Marines and got the rest of his life. And now, you know, he's in a shitstorm. And Ansi, <laughs> I think he's he's gonna have a similar story. I I'm thinking. We'll see. But I think he's going to pull his stuff together here, like, you know, in, in, in a fight. He's going to be kind of the hero. He's going to go down in a blaze of glory, but he's going to die, I think. Hmm. I'll ride along with that. I don't have any other opinions, so cool. Can do. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, should we see what happens to Quick Ben here? Yeah. Sweet. Quick Ben, dripping with slime, dragged himself upright, spitting water out as he looked around. His attackers were nowhere in sight. The faint smell of salt hung in the air. Quick Ben found himself thinking that he was in a long dead warren, decayed by the loss of mortal memory. Having enough of the quiet, he spoke, saying that he was here and that they could come out now. Movement in the mists alerted him. The creatures approaching him were not bargast, but something smaller, squatter, like a mix of Talan and Toblakai. He thought of himself how old this place must be, as men and women all closed in around Quick Ben. A man-shaped bundle of sticks with an acorn for a head came skittering in. Quick Ben nodded to him and said that he thought he was returning to the Whiteface clan. Telamanda said that he did, thanks solely to Quick Ben's cleverness. Quick Ben made a comment that this was an odd way of showing gratitude, but then asked where he, where was he? Telamanda said that they were at the first landing were warriors who did not survive the journey's end. He explains that they had crossed the oceans in ceaseless battle, and when the voyage was done, half of the canoes held corpses. Quick asks where the dead Bargas go now. Telemandus replied that they are nowhere and everywhere all at once, and that they are lost. He tells Quick that Quick's challenger has defeated Humbral Tor's champion, but the spirits hold their breath as Trots may still die. Quick was silent for a time and then asked what would happen if Trots were to die. Telemandus explains that Humbral Tor would have no choice but to slaughter Quick Ben's soldiers. The Bargas chief will face civil war, and the spirits themselves would lose their unity. The Styxnare said that this was not why he brought Quick Ben here. He gestures to the figures behind him and states that these are the warriors to the army, but they have no war chiefs among them. The founding spirits were lost long ago, but a child of Humbral Tor has found them. Quick Ben could tell that there was a problem and stated that stated those words. Telemanda said there was, and that was that those founding spirits were trapped within the city of Capistan. The realization of this fact slowly set into Quick's mind. He asked if Humbral knew. Telemandus explains that he does not, and he was driven away by the clan's shouldermen, as the ancient spirits are not welcome. They're divided from time and the loss of memory. The ancient spirits are strangers to their children. Quick asks if Humbral hoped that his child would find these founding spirits. The stick snare said that Humbral took on a grave risk, but yet knows the white-faced clans are vulnerable. 
Because the young spirits are too weak to resist the Domen. Quick asks, if he were to tell Humbral, would he believe him? Telamanda said that the mage must do what he can to convince the war chief. Quick said that he freed Telemandus from his wards. Telemandus asked what the mage wanted in return. Quick Ben said that Trot needs to survive his wounds so he can take place among the council of chiefs. They need a position of strength. Telemandus said that he cannot return to the tribes as he'll be driven away. Quick Ben asks if the stick snare can channel his power through a mortal. Quick explains that they have a Denol healer, but he's having trouble with his warren because of the Panion's poison. Telemandus cocked his head and said that if he's to be gifted with their power, he must be led to this warren. Telemandus turned to survey his kin and then faced the wizard and said that he agreed. So, so you got a few thoughts here. I've got lots of thoughts. Okay. Here's what I find interesting about this, uh, you know, recent Bargas discovery, right? And Telemandus being removed from his barrel. I think that's kind of like the beginning of the sequence of events. He meets Quick Ben, who gets rid of the binds that the necromancers have on him so that he can go release other fellow Bargas spirits. And he's assembled this army, right? Uh, and basically have returned to this warren that has been, hasn't been used in however long, right? So long that current Bargas don't even know it exists, right? Like, I love that. It must that be line. pretty old. Right, exactly. <laughs> but what I think is cool is that if this is a long dead warren, my guess is that the crippled god and the panion are completely unaware of it which could be used by the guard bargast and those they maybe choose to ally with against the crippled god and we get a little bit of an like my guess is the crippled god only knows what exists because of what exists he's a stranger to this land he doesn't know what existed prior to that right yeah yeah so i just thought that that was interesting again I, i like the the humor here when you know quick ben is like Oh, well, that was an odd way of showing gratitude. And it just, <laughs> you know, yeah. Let me just pull you down through the earth to say thank you. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And I'm not sure if I would I would be the same way after an endeavor like that, but uh I guess if I was amongst a familiar, I wouldn't I wouldn't give a shit. Who knows? You'd probably be a little more comfortable anyways. Yeah, he just seems very like nonchalant about it now. Which I think is yeah. the reason why I didn't feel as impacted by it in the earlier section so and then uh where he's talking about the warriors not surviving the journey's end it kind of makes me feel like this first landing so to speak is some type of waiting room but like a waiting room for the dead but maybe i'm wrong for thinking like that but so uh, it's like purgatory maybe you know just kind of like a a place to hang out until your next step until ascension maybe you know i mean I don't know. I just I don't really have uh, any thoughts on it. So I'll, I'll go along with it. Like, you know, as you say. Yeah. So, um, you know, and this is kind of where going back to what we previously talked about, but the spirits holding their breath as trots may still die. So I think that this is maybe why they don't want a tie is because they all, the Bargas all recognize the consequences that if trots were to die if there is no champion then it equals the slaughtering of the bridge burners which i'm sure the bargas could care less about that but then not only that but just 
civil war amongst the clams, which is obviously not going to be beneficial if they're going to take out the panty. Right. Yes. Yeah. But I almost kind of get a feeling that trots may be related to Telemandos in some way, shape, or form. I don't know why. I just got that like weird feeling due to like the lack like, of uh, information. Just like a descendant? Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, they don't explain his tattoos. They explain that his lineage is there and that it, it, it explains his history. But, you know, again, it's just kind of like, you know, similar themes to what we already talked about, but the Bargast have no memory. So any ancestral spirits, they don't, they don't believe are their ancestors. So this whole, like, the ancient spirits are strangers to their children. That's just such, like, a fucked up way to think about it. You know, like, I can't even imagine, like, being estranged to you know, my great, great grandchildren, you know, like, wait a minute, like you've forgotten everything from here backwards, like the fuck, dude. So, yeah. Um, and it's, it's said they were saying that only the young spirits are welcome, but the strong, the young ones don't have any power because they have forgotten too. I thought that's why they wanted, they were welcome because they're not very powerful. That is true. Yes. Yes. I forgot about that detail. Because they're not afraid of them. Right. I, I mean, I guess that's that's where just my thoughts went right away. Yeah. The last thing that I had was that when Quick Ben is like, hey, I freed you from your wards, bruh. And then Telemannus is like, okay, well, what do you want in return? I find this to be a really weird exchange because Telemannus needs Trots to survive. Not because of his lineage, because if he dies, the, the Civil Wars, the clans... Why are they bargaining? Or why does Quick have to bring this up to tell Amanda's like he's learning it over him? You know? Like, I just I thought that that was very weird exchange. Maybe he would have thought he wanted something else. I guess. I don't know what he would want, but... Maybe that was just Quick's way to move the conversation into the direction of allowing Telemandus the conversation to gift his power into another. Into a mortal. Yeah. So... Maybe that's all it is, and maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but yeah, that's my thoughts. All right. Ready to keep going? I'm ready to keep going. I think I got a short one here. As Twist descended in the quarrel, a javelin ascended towards them, but missed as they landed in the circle. Laughter and curses rose from the warriors, but no further action was taken. Pran looked at the squad who was protecting Trots and Mulch, then yelled to make a hole as he pushed past the Bargast warriors. He told Twist to get out of the area. He said he would return to Ansi, but wanted to know what happened. Paran, told, Paran said Trotz won the fight, but they may yet lose the war, and to hit the road before he was stabbed. Paran grabbed Mallet and said it was bad. Trotz won the fight, but his throat was crushed in the process. Mallet asked how he was still alive. Paran explained that Mulch had poked a hole in his chest above the lung, and that's how he's still breathing. Basically gave him a fucking trachea out at me. Mallet said that was clever, but he may not be much use to him or Trotz. Before he could finish the sentence, Paran barged in and told him he had better figure it out. If he dies, so will the rest of them. Mallet tried to explain the problem with his warren, but Paran wasn't interested in excuses. Just heal him. Mallet told him that in the process, it would likely kill him. This surprised Paran, and Mallet told him it was a fair exchange. He'd heal Trotz, and they would all get out, and that's what mattered. Paran replied, as you say, Mallet. Mallet said Aimless was waving them over. Paran told him to go and noticed he never faltered in a step. He wondered who these soldiers were. 
Yeah, Paran, pretty pretty cold to Mallet, you know, saying basically telling him you got to kill yourself to heal and save this guy because right now he's more important. And Mallet's just like, yeah, fine, I'll do it. Um, and I was kind of wondering if it was, you know, a genuine act of selflessness or if it was sarcasm, but I, I think he was pretty genuine about it. No, this makes sense. Like, I'm not happy about it, but I'll do it. You know, then Paran kind of catches himself that he's kind of being a dickhead about it. Probably should have found a different way to word things, but in the heat of the moment, that stuff doesn't come easy. You know, I've got some thoughts on leadership in one of my later sections regarding Paran, so... That's about all I had to say there. Gotcha. Yeah, and I just think that he's uh, he's not thinking. He's not thinking about Mallet. He's thinking about everybody, which I think Mallet understands. So I would agree. I definitely think that he's being genuine here. Yeah, that's what bridge burners do. They just like scratch each other's backs, even though they you know give each other shit all the time. But like when push comes to shove, like there's no question. Oh yeah, I mean that's I mean that's how I mean any good friendship should be, right? I mean, yeah, they're they're soldiers and they know they've got a job to do, but I mean, I don't think you do that type of stuff for somebody if you're not friends with somebody and it's probably more than that. It's it's family. It's not friendship, it's just family. Right. That's a very good point. But yeah, I I don't have any other thoughts outside of what we just talked about. So Yeah. Yeah, we can keep going here. I feel like we're cruising along pretty good. I yeah. mean, we're still almost two hours here, so. Yeah, I guess that's about our use. Um, but anyway, Mallet pulled, pushed Mulch aside and knelt next to Trots. Mallet reached for his warren and Mulch warned him about his warren. Mallet told the cutter to shut it. His eyes closed as his fingers touched the collapsed, mangled throat of Trots. He opened his warren and the diseased power rushed into him. He felt intense physical pain. And then the world vanished within that pain. He thought to himself to find the path, the vein of order. He tells himself to fight it and stay sane. He felt his sanity tearing away. He drew on the core of health within his soul, felt it pour through his fingertips to Trot's throat. As quickly as it came, that core dissolved. Hands suddenly grasped him. His spirit struggled. He was being dragged. Sudden calm. Mallet found himself kneeling in a fetid pool. Then a murmuring rose all around him. When he then looked up, a thousand voices whispered to take from them, take their power, return to his place, and use all that he's been gifted. Mallet opened himself to the power that surrounded him. The Danal Warren was all around him, but yet held back from him. Mallet could feel his fingers once more, yet within his mind he still walked and pushed onward. He thought to himself, who has done this for him and why? The warren began to dim around him. He was almost home. He walked a carpet of corpses, his path through the poisoned horror of his warren. The healer's eyes blinked open. He saw that Trot's throat was no more than a bruise. He met Trot's gaze. He thought to himself that there were two paths, one for him and one for Trot's. Trot's reached up and they clasped hands. Trotz asked who paid. Mallet said that it wasn't him and he didn't know. But yeah, I it's fucking I like that section. It was very, very quick. But the first, I guess, thought I had is Mallet is basically saying he thought to himself to find the path, the vein of order. 
And it just kind of made me think about in chapter seven, when Karul shows Envy this vision of like two halves of a heart. And now we get Vane mentioned here. Is it possible that like Karul is the body, veins, arteries, and capillaries throughout his like body and all different types of warrens and realms? Oh, good catch. I did not think of that at all. So is that kind of like maybe a little bit of a peek into kind of the, the hierarchy of sorcery here is that like, and it may not be cruel. I'm just saying that, you know, that could just be the mechanism to which the realms and the, uh, the Warrens work. Right. I mean, if you think of like veins, they're essentially like Warrens, they're just pathways that lead from A to B. So, like, the hand is, like, the Nanal, and the ear is, you know, the mean-ass Warren, or whatever you want to call it, you know? Like, just that type of function. And the uh, the parts outside of the veins are the Warren of Chaos. Interesting. Yeah, no, I didn't think of that. It's a good, uh, nice catch. Whether that's legit or not, I have no idea. But that's just kind of what it makes me think of. Hey, if it's not right, it sounds fucking cool. So it I is. Mean, at, at minimum, there's that. So <laughs> that's true. Huh. Maybe it'll be canon one day. <laughs> Doubt it. And then just after the the murmuring voices take you know tell him to use what's been gifted, they end this rant by saying that this path they have laid was a costly one. And I wonder what that cost would be. Is it potentially just the discovery of a new warren to their enemies, or is there more? I didn't really know what that meant either. I was really struggling with that. So if there are folks out there that can clarify without really spoiling anything, that would be much appreciated. But yes, nope. I'm sure that will will be all revealed in good time. Yeah. Just the like term carpet of corpses, like <laughs> that's pretty fucking wild. Yeah. Yes. And we're gonna talk about no, we're gonna talk about that. Okay. Sorry, that was just my little interjector right there. No, no, it's no, it's a great segue. But uh, you know, the last thought that I had, so the bar gas warren, we don't really know what it's called. I'm guessing act as like a protection. Uh so Malik could utilize his denal warren, like gloves, right? And but what was the thought about walking on the carpet of corpuses through his warren? Is that supposed to represent the spirits that have that died using it? Or the recent deaths of conjuring the Warren and the deaths from the poison. Like, it just, I find it very interesting, and but I would just love some clarity on that. Or is it like the, uh, it wouldn't be like those from the first landing, would it? The carpet, the carpet of corpses. I think they're yeah, talking about yeah. within his Warren, though, within the Denual um, Warren. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I could use some clarity too. No. Cool. I don't know. Well, our listeners out there. I do not have it for you. It, I'm not answering your question. Love some so. clarity, or at least the the affirmation that uh, it will be revealed in due time. Yeah, maybe a little breadcrumb to lead us along. Yeah, but I mean, outside of that, I, I didn't really have like everything happens in such quick succession here, you know. So at this point, Trots is healed; it's just a bruise. So I would imagine that you know that's done. But you know, there's still this like tension on what happens, you know, now that they know there isn't going to be a tie. Do you think, like, how do you think Trotz is going to feel after all this? Like, <laughs> if somebody raises a hand, like, towards his face, you think he's just going to chop their fucking arm off? 
Uh, I, I mean, I would. I'm not, I'm not doing this again. Not doing this game again. I've I've been down this road. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I guess we don't really know a ton about traps. He definitely seems to speak in riddles and rhymes. So I'm I'm not I'm not too sure. I can't yeah. answer that one either. Well, uh, you want me to go here again? Another short one for me. Doer tour. Bran could not move. Dared not get any closer. All he could see were his soldiers huddled around Trots. He thought that he gave the healer the command to kill himself to save Trots. If that was the burden of command, then he did not want a part of it. He didn't feel worthy of judging who lived and died. It was a nightmare he didn't need. He asked Mulch for a situation report. He told Peran he would live. Trots would survive, while Mallet only had superficial wounds that he would tend to. Peran told Mulch he was dismissed. Mulch was confused. Pran told him to take care of Mallet and get out of his sight. As he waited to hear the man leave, he also waited for the pain in his gut to resume, but it never did. Pran took a deep breath and thought that no one would die. They would all make it out. He needed to tell Tower that Trots won and the rest of them could go to hell. Yeah, I kind of feel a little bit bad for Pran. I think that, you know, like you mentioned earlier, he thinks that he's a dick, which he kind of was, but it backfired on him. You know, uh, Mallet just thought that he was doing what any bridge burner would. But I think it's interesting that he waited for the pain in his gut to resume, but it never did. So I feel like this is telling him that what he's feeling is correct. Maybe. I don't know. I think there's something to that. I don't know what, though. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure. I feel like I, the I pain- didn't. Re- nope. You could, I, I'm not saying anything. I'm rambling. Go ahead. I'm just saying that I think that like the pain that he's feeling uh, in his gut are more or less things telling him that he's like going the right direction, like hot potato, so to speak. If you feel the pains, probably not doing what you should be doing. You're running away. But if you, or if you feel the pains, you're running away. If you don't feel the pains, you're going the right direction. Sure. I can get on board with that. Where that leads or what the specifics are, I have no idea. Yeah. I don't think that's meant for us to figure out. I think we could probably continue on here. Like I said, I've got some thoughts on like the leadership aspect of things that I think are in my last section. So I'll just save it for there if you want to continue on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's do our tour. Mulch and Aimless watched as Paran strode towards Tor's tent. Mulch said that Paran was a hard bastard. Aimless said he was as cold as a jag hut winter and that Mallet looked to be a dead man for a minute. Mulch agreed, and after some silence, Mulch said that the captain might just make it after all. One of the soldiers nearby shouted and said to look at the ridge. He shouted uh, that he could see Detorian and Spindle, and that they were carrying someone between them. Mulch said that it was probably Quick Ben, as he likely played too long in his warrens. Aimless sneered and said who needs those lazy mages anyway. Mulch asked him about the necessity of healers. Aimless jaws dropped as he tried to cover up his statement. Mulch tells him to stow it and asks what these bargasts will do to them. Aimless said that Trots had won. Mulch simply said, so? And Aimless's jaw dropped a second time. So again, you know, just another very quick section. I think that, again, the bridge burners are kind of having or changing their tune for Paran, which is a good thing, I think. I mean, if they don't want to kill him right now, I would, yeah, that seems to be a good thing for Pran. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Um, it just, 
I, I just, I, I love the banter and I know that this, you know, it's almost become a theme in this chapter is just the amount of banter. And I can say it now, I can say it then, but, uh, you know, going back to where we started this, this conversation, I felt like this entire chapter is just that, that humor before some fucked up shit. So I'm like, here's a little treat before you're served broccoli and cauliflower for a long time, you know? <laughs> well, but even like, I don't even know how much humor it was. It might've just been seriousness because I, mean, I mean, they've kind of heard the whole time that, well, even if Trotz wins, they still might die. Yeah. I mean, I, maybe it's just humor for the reader, not necessarily for the characters. Sure. That's fair. That's all I had. I just am, am, I'm enjoying the banter throughout this chapter because I think it's just kind of adding some levity to the impending doom that I'm sure that we could be feeling at this point in time because the tension is building. It is. Well, would you like to continue on? It's your turd. It's my turd. Yep. Section 11 zeros. Well, I knew that. I was just making sure you were done. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm ready to go. Sorry, I thought you were waiting that I had to read next. And I'm like, no, no, no. Nay, <laughs> nay. Yeah, it was like no, quick no, no. I mean, what, what was it? Literally eight minutes ago, we were on section six, and now we're on section yeah. 11. Like, so yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess if you insist, I'll read, Justin. Oh, okay. Smoke filled Tower's tent. Pran entered as the war chief stood alone. Yes, Pran, what he had come to tell him. Paran said that Trotz lived and takes claim of leadership. Tower said he has no tribe. Paran cut him off saying that that was false and he had a tribe of 38 bridge burners, which was on display in the manner of how he dueled. Tower said he knew what he was shown and he understood it as well. They stood in silence for a few moments while Paran looked around the tent trying to gauge Tower's character. Tower finally spoke and said Paran had lost his command. Meeting his eyes, Paran said it was a relief. Tower told him to never admit his unwillingness to rule. What he fears in himself will cloud the judgment of everything his successor does. Fear within himself would blind you to both his wisdom and stupidity. Trotz has never been a commander. It was visible within his eyes the moment he stepped forward from Paran's ranks. Tower told him he would need to watch him with clear vision and that he had some mead. He offered some to Paran, who reluctantly accepted the drink. Tower said they would wait another day before addressing the rest of the clans. Trotz would need to speak as he had earned that right among the chiefs. However, they would not march to Capistan. They owe that city and its inhabitants nothing. Each year they lose more and more of their own to the city and that way of life. Paran told Tower that Capistan was not their enemy. Tower knew the Doman would come for them. They would use the city as a staging ground then march on them. Paran asked why. If he knew all this, then why would they not join forces? Tower told him there are 27 clans. Of those, only eight of the war chiefs would stand with him. He would need all of their support. Can their new chief change minds with his words? Paran didn't know. He hardly speaks as it is. They would find out tomorrow. Tower told Paran that the bridge burners were still in danger. There were several clans united against them. The White Faces have no love for the Malazans as they are allied with the Moranth. Conquered the North. How long until their gaze fell upon them? They are the Plains Bearer urging them to fight with the Southern Tiger. And while the mind of a tiger was always known, that of a Plains Bearer was not. 
Paran said it appears their fate was still up in the air. Tower said, come tomorrow. Paran excused himself, saying he needed to see to his men, while Tower urged him to let them have the night. He left the tent and found Picker and Blend. He assumed they had good news. They said they had made it, and they thought they should report. Paran asked where Ansi was, and they said he wasn't feeling good. They had also lost Quick Ben for a little while, but now they had him back, only he wouldn't wake up. Spindle thinks he's in shock, or something, since he was pulled into a bargast warren. Paran said they needed to get to him ASAP and to lead on. They made it to the camp as the other members of the squad were setting up. Paran wanted to know what had happened. Spindle said it was all just a guess, but they were crossing a barrow, which Paran thought was an awesome idea, and the spirits reached up and grabbed Quick Ben, pulling him under. So they waited a while, and he was spit up like this. The warrants have gone sour. Quick Ben said it was the Panion, but also not really the Panion, but the power behind them, or the Panion, and they were all in trouble. Paran saw Trots walking by, and Paran shouted at him, saying they needed to talk. Mallet said he wasn't feeling great. Paran told him he wouldn't ask him to use his warrant again, but he did need Quick Ben awake, if he had any suggestions. Trot said he wasn't weakened, only that he didn't feel right. He had help from the Bargas spirits healing Trots. Somehow they put him back together, but it was like he's got someone else's arms and legs now. He touched Quick Ben's forehead and said he was on his way back and that it was protective sorcery that kept him asleep. Paran asked if he could speed it up. Mallet said sure and slapped Quick Ben across the face. He called Mallet a bastard, to which he responded by telling him to quit complaining, and Paran wanted him wanted to talk to him. Quick Ben said they all owed him and asked what the situation was here. Paran said they were still in trouble, and they didn't have many friends. Their enemies were getting bolder. The war chief held command, but it was shaky at best, and with Trotz killing his favorite son, that didn't help things very much. With that being said, Tower was still more or less on their side. He doesn't give a shit about Capistan, but understands the threat that the Doman faces, poses. Quick Ben said he could change his mind on that. He asked Mallet if he felt strange in his own body. Mallet was caught off guard. Paran asked what he knew about it, to which Quick Ben said, everything. And they needed to go talk to Tower, Twist included. Paran said, fine. Here we go again. Well done, sir. Kind of a lot uh, going on there. But still, I don't have a ton of things to talk well, about here a couple but i feel like it's all stuff we've already talked about because they're coming to the the characters themselves are coming to the same conclusions that we as the readers have yeah just if, like what was that if that makes sense um i think so my first thought here is just where tower is telling paran that he's lost his command and paran said well that's a relief i thought it was kind of interesting that he's putting off that kind of a like vibe I guess for lack of a better term, because he, he kind I mean, friends obviously still like questioning things, you know, like, Oh, am I doing the right thing? But he does kind of seem to me at least to be getting more comfortable with things. Like you said, he's kind of, it seems like he's earning the squad's loyalty. Right. Um, so to be like, you know, well, great. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to do this anyways, which I get because, being in charge sucks. Everybody's looking to you to make a decision. And it can be the right decision. It can be the wrong decision. It doesn't matter. You've got to make a decision. And people aren't going to like it one way or the other. So you're screwed, whatever you do. But um, it's just interesting that he's that he just kind of played it off like that. Yeah, for sure. I would agree with everything that you said. Uh, the Southern Tiger, do you think that was a reference to Treach? 
Potentially. Potentially. What's the other one's name? I can't remember the other one's name. They're kind of synonymous, I felt like, but Trey can treach. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. I, I don't know how I feel. I feel like they're just naming off animals. Um, yeah. But, I mean, I guess th- there could be. Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I wasn't sure either. And that's just kind of like, well, I mean, it caught my attention. So, I don't know. It very well could be nothing. Um, <laughs> the, the last thing, when Mallet just slaps Quickbin across the face, I imagine that is not what Paran had in mind as far as waking him up. Because, <laughs> I mean... Paran could have just slapped him in the face, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure in some way. Face or, I mean, it just kind of goes back to the, the banter part, right? They're just fucking with each other at this point, you know? <laughs> yeah, I just think, yeah, you know, well, he's probably thinking like, well, how many times, how often am I going to have the opportunity to slap Quick Ben in the face? I better just <laughs> do it. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. It's kind yeah. of like, how many times, how often am I going to have the opportunity to smash a pie into your face, Justin? I better just do it. Exactly. Well, um, yeah, I, I mean, again, I feel like the majority of these conversations are things that like we've talked about in this episode already, you know, especially with like the Malzans and the Capistan and the threat of the Doman to the, the Bargast, you know, I mean, these are all things that are not new to us. And I think that's why we don't have much to pick out in this kind of lengthier section. Right. I think it's interesting that they're both like, well, let's just give it one more day. You know, let's not make any hasty decisions. Let's just wait and give it one more day before any type of settle down a little and hmm? got to let things settle down a little bit. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But I'm, yeah, I don't have any other thoughts. I'm ready to take my last section here. Yeah. I had to check the book. I was like, I thought you had the last section. That's but what I, I thought it was too. me. <laughs> uh, that's weird so maybe it's just because of the i think there were like what five or six really short ones right after each other so there was some short ones and i thought i i thought like i thought i had a section that was like longer but i didn't realize that it split to one of your sections so mm-hmm. i as i was summarizing i was like oh man i got a fucking big one here but it was broken up with one of yours that's good Sunset approached, and the Bargast resumed their dancing and their dueling. Picker sat near Humble Tor's tent, complaining about not having anything to do. She tells Blen that she doesn't think this is all over. Blen asks if she should hunt Ansi down. Picker tells her not to bother, as a Baran maiden was taking Ansi for a ride. The two joke and laugh about how long Ansi would last, and how displeased the Baran maiden would be. Picker gets back to being serious and explains that they could all be dead tomorrow, regardless of what Quick says to Tor. They switch the conversation to Trots and his win, but converse about how it should have been Detorin in that ring, as she would have ended ended it before it even began. They joke about the Gilk warrior that Detorian had taken into some bushes and how he's probably dead. They fell silent and watched the ongoing duels of the Bargast. Picker gets lost in thoughts. Blend is then heard saying that the air feels strange. The torques on Picker's arm were hot and slowly getting hotter. Blend asks Picker if she remembers the night in Black Dog. Picker thought to herself that she did remember the Rivy Burn Ground, the malign spirits rising up from the ashes. She tells Blend that she does remember. Blend says that there are spirits loose. They talk about where the nastiest of the Bargas spirits are. 
and how if they were here, they wouldn't want to miss anything like this. Picker tells Blen to think of something pleasant for a change. Blen tells Picker that she's going to take a look around because if this is their last night, she might as well enjoy it. Picker watched as her friend slipped away into the shadows. Picker has thoughts about how Blend had left her more miserable than before, thinking about where the baddies of the Bargast were laying in wait, ready to jump them all come the morning. Spindle made his way to her, smelling like burnt hair. He crouched down and said that it wasn't going well. She asked what was. Spindle elaborated and said that half the soldiers were drunk and the rest were not that far behind. The captain going into that tent and not coming out wasn't a good sign. They won't be in any shape to defend themselves come dawn. Picker glanced at the tent, saw the silhouettes of the figures inside, and then after a moment told Spindle to not worry about it and to just go have some fun. Spindle gaped and said, fun? Picker said to go on. She's out there, but he might want to remove that shirt. The mage said that he couldn't do that because what would his mother think? Picker studied the man and slowly reminded Spindle that his mother was dead. She could not be there to judge and watch over him, and that he could sow his wild oats. The mage ducked down as if dodging an invisible slap before turning away and leaving. Picker thought to herself that maybe their ancestors were here. In her mind, she said that if her da was there, to not even come near her, or she'll slit his throat like she did the first time. Damn. Sounds like a model uh, perfect child there. Well, I'm assuming there's probably some uh, domestic violence or sexual. Uh, something not good, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, surprisingly had a lot in this very weird uh, section that has really nothing to do with moving the storyline. It's just kind of like a, a character piece. I really liked how they made fun of how long Nancy would last in bed. I thought that that was hilarious. <laughs> And I didn't pick up on it at first. It wasn't until I reread it, reread it, where I'm like, "Oh, he's a one minute man," and they're making fun of him for it. <laughs> so, and then you know, moving on to uh, the you know a bashing of their their colleagues when they're talking about Detorian, and I think this is hilarious as well. You know, they're just they're shitting on their own companions, talking about how she's railing this Gilk warrior. Because Edge <laughs> had ran off and hid from Detorian, right? So, or because, you know, he made a comment that ended up getting him smacked in the nose. So she's just like, I'm getting the sense that like she's rage fucking this dude because <laughs> why not, right? Uh, if it's your last night on earth, you might go as well for rage it. fuck, right? Go for it. The other thing is the torques on Picker's arms. I remember that happening, but it's really interesting that they really haven't been mentioned up until this chapter. So is, and I know that they were Treach's torques. So the fact that they're like hot, slowly getting hotter, is that like a sign that like Treach is rising or ascending or, uh, you know, what, what, I don't, I don't know what to make of that there. I feel like it's such a random character for this to be happening to. I did not think about that. I did not catch that, but there definitely could be something going on. Like just some like small foreshadowing. I don't think that like Picker is Treach incarnate by any means. I think that that them getting hotter and hotter is supposed to represent something else concerning Treach. Gotcha. Uh, one of my other thoughts was that uh, 
you know, Blend says like, oh, well, you know, the spirits are loose. Kind of like what happened up in Black Dog with the Rivy Burn Dog or Burn Ground. And they kind of talk about the nastiest of the Bargast. So I'm wondering if that is what Telemandus is referring to with the war chiefs in. Um, so I'm wondering if like the baddies that Blend and Picker are having a conversation about are the war chiefs that are buried in Capistan underneath the thrall, or if it's something else. I I don't know. We'll have to read and find out. Yeah. I just thought that that was interesting. Uh, the other thing, my last comment here is Picker's in a really kind of antsy mood. I think it's funny that she's kind of piloting and parroting antsy's kind of persona here. Because she's like very negative, very like uh, paranoid about what's going to happen tomorrow. And I feel like at the end, she just kind of comes to terms with it a little bit by telling Spindle to just don't worry about it. Just go have fun, you know? So like, maybe that's herself saying that, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to enjoy it. Cause there's not much I could do. It's out of my hands, you know? Right. I mean, yeah. What else do you do? I mean, they've all seen so much death. Like, I mean, they know what's coming for them. Right. I mean, I get the sense that they don't get many, good things no they kind of seem like they get the shit end of the stick for sure yeah like things are not easy for them very often so if you can if you can have a night off you better you better take advantage right exactly those are all the thoughts that i had just again kind of a, another bantery section more of that humor that we kind of get throughout the chapter which again just makes me feel like it's not necessarily tension building. I mean, there's definitely that element there, but I think it's just kind of like some fun before the shit hits the fan. I, I think it's definitely going to hit the fan. So, well, yeah. ready to finish this chapter up? Ready to bring her home, man. All right, we're going head first into home plate here. Pran left the tent thinking they were all awake. The real battle was done. He could almost see them, the dark godlings of the Bargast facing the mortal dawn, for the first time in thousands of years. Quick Ben came to stand next to him and said the Bargast spirits had left Mallet and asked Paran if he could feel them. The spirits? All the barriers had been broken. Old ones joined with their younger spirit kin and the forgotten Warren was no more. Paran said that's great news, but they still have a city to liberate. What would happen if Tower raised the war banner and his rivals denied it? Quick Ben said that wouldn't and couldn't happen. Every shoulderman would begin to feel the change. The true gods are trapped in Capistan, and the time has come to free them. Paran asked Quickben if he knew the Moranth were related to the Bargast. He said, yeah, more or less. And Tower and the tribes may not like it, but the spirits have embraced them. Paran thought he needed to sleep, but when he spoke, he said he needed to gather the bridge burners. Grinning, Quickben called... The bridge burners trots new tribe and that he is new to responsibility, so he would have to teach him. Pran didn't know what he was supposed to teach him. He didn't know how to teach him beneath a chain of command. That was something he couldn't even do. I feel like I forgot a word there. Uh, one look at Whiskey Jack was all it took to know that no one could do that. They all strive to learn one thing, the ability to hide their thoughts, mask their feelings, and bury their humanity deep in their souls. And that's not something that can be taught, something that can only be shown. Kind of a heavy ending there. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Very ominous feeling. 
Yeah, and so this this is why I feel like the bar gas m- must end up go going to Capistan, and maybe again, maybe it's not necessarily to liberate the city. <laughs> maybe they'll get there, and they'll just fucking kill everybody inside um, the cabins and Malazans and whatever, so they can set their gods free. I don't know, um, but I think they're going to end up there one way or another. But you know this this last. Kind of this last paragraph where Paran's thinking about teaching Trotz kind of the the role of command, role of leadership, and how you just have to like turn yourself off to to feelings. You know, again, I think of like World War II stuff. You know, like these commanders, they're planning battles and everything else, and you know you're sending guys to die. There's no way about it. You're not naive enough to know that everybody's going to make it back. It's just not happening. Like, you know, the planning at D-Day, like your plan was just to send so many people at the Germans that they couldn't possibly kill them all. You know, you're ending lives. And how do you deal with that? How do you like come to terms that it's a horrible thing, but it's like the greater good. And how do you put that on an individual level? I don't know, but you got to hide it. You hide it. That's all you can do. You pretend you don't feel it. You bury it deep inside. It's, and I'm, I'm sure it's a horrible feeling, but it's just kind of that thing that has to be done. I, I don't know how else you would explain it. You can't teach it. You got to learn it from somebody else. You see them doing it, see how they deal with it, see how they react. And that's just what you have to emulate. I, I don't know. I don't think I could have said it any more perfect than the way that you did. I think that that was, <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, I'm, I'm lost for words as to what to say. I think that that, beautifully encapsulates what what he's trying to say here or his thoughts here maybe <laughs> i don't know that's just i mean the way i think think about it is just kind of like that way it's just i mean leadership and command like is not a glorious thing maybe you're not you might be in a position maybe where you're not getting shot at <laughs> but the guys under you are right. how do you feel about that how do you how does that make you feel you're like well, well maybe you're grateful you're not dead somebody's dad somebody's brother somebody's husband somebody else is dead that's got to take a toll on you I, I don't know how it couldn't yeah and so now he has to he's got to pass that burden on to somebody else i think that would be a hard thing to do well yeah i mean how do you teach apathy when you yourself are not necessarily an apathetic person well and especially like in real life you can't be in in that you just you got to be a cold-blooded killer even though i don't know how much you know, like Prans, obviously, like he's seen a lot of shit. Um, Trotz just almost died and killed a guy right in front of him. Like he's a killer, but I don't know. It's just, it's a weird thing. Definitely is weird. But um, yeah, good point, man. That was well said. That's, I mean, that was kind of my only thought there. So we made it. Yeah. And I think that like this last section really kind of just, uh, I wouldn't say there's a finality to it, but it, it kind of, allows us to align with some of our thoughts and speculations as we're going through the chapter and that it definitely seems that uh tor uh with the newfound knowledge that quick ben has given him from telemandus that they're going to try to relieve capustan not necessarily to relieve capustan but to essentially find their elders right yeah so, i'm curious as to how things will play out for sure yeah but I think that Trotz will, like I said earlier in the, the episode, I think he will end up uniting and in the clans to embrace change and maybe kind of forego some of those traditional barriers that kind of give the Bargas their name. 
We'll have to see. Yeah. But I don't I don't have any other thoughts, man. I uh you know, again, uh going through the chapter, I wouldn't say that anything was like, you know, so much of a surprise that I was like genuinely shocked by it. There were definitely some small instances. But I think overall the chapter is just kind of a way of setting the tone for the calm before the storm. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the biggest surprise was just kind of how the duel played out. Like I said, I wasn't super nervous about it, but then I was kind of like, oh, well, I mean, that's definitely not what I expected. So right, we'll see what we get next. I, I don't know if we'll continue, you know, with these characters, the next chapter. I would, I'd like to maybe get back to like Lady Envy and uh, maybe we see what talk is up, uh, talk is up to um, Tool. Um, Bauchelaine, Corporal Brooch, Gruntel. Um, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know what we'll get next. I feel like, but. and I mentioned this, um, you know, to a text to you today or sometime in the last couple of days. But I think that being that the next chapter is so short, uh, I think it's like literally 18 pages or something like that. Uh, I think that uh, some shit is going to hit the fan in that short chapter that we're just not expecting. Well, we go from page 367 to 380, so it's 13 pages. That's like basically like 10 and a half pages because really the chapter doesn't start till 368 because the epigraph's on 367, and page 380 is like half a paragraph. So, gotcha. so it'll be a short one. For sure. So it's very possible that we could have a... Uh, an episode with two chapters coming up next, but I guess we're just kind of seeing, we're seeing what, uh, how much information and depth there is on that 13 pager. Yeah. I know it's, it was in gardens. We talked about doing that. We, I think we even tried. We're like, yeah, this is a terrible idea and yep. it didn't pan out. So, um, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll do it. I, it might be kind of fun to read more than one chapter at a go. Um, but if, if not, I mean, I'm fine either way. So we'll yeah. see. I have no qualms editing an under hour uh, video. There's nothing wrong with that in my eyes. So. <laughs> yeah, you, that's a lot of. I mean, you put a lot of work into doing those. So I like them to sound not stupid. <laughs> they always sound good when I listen to them after you put them out. So you do a good job. Yeah, I try to make it so that it like flows, you know. And you know, sometimes the bathroom breaks can kind of break up <laughs> the conversation. So. Or like those long, awkward pauses where we're like, uh, 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 struggling to find our thoughts. So, right. Well, yeah, dude, this was fun. I'm happy to get back into it and, uh, continue to move on. Yeah. This is, uh, what I think this is episode 91 overall. I don't even know anymore, man. I'm pretty sure it's episode 91. So we're, we're closing in on the 100 and, uh two years is coming up here pretty quick in less than a month so yep two years two years and what did 10 very big books say we've been done in four years and we're not even halfway through the series yet well i mean we do other stuff so yeah that's fair that's fair i always forget about that that we're no i'm not in a rush no i'm not either i guess speaking of our other book here I know you're not reading the collector's edition, but uh, we did get to a point where we have one of the little page insert art things. So I thought that was cool on right. uh, Curse the Fallen. So maybe, maybe you'll have to whip it out. You'll have to check that out. Yeah, it looks good. I, they're cool things. So yeah, awesome. Well, uh, another great episode, sir. Should probably let you go, being that uh, yeah. 
we started at seven. So yeah, I would say probably editing time a little over two hours, which is about our use. It falls within our yep. average. Well, I hope you have a good night. Enjoy your weekend here and we'll talk soon. I'll probably, I'm probably not going to read this next chapter tonight. I'll probably do it tomorrow morning when I go stick a needle in my arm and donate plasma. Yeah. I don't know if I will. It all depends on what my kids want to do. We've been, uh, I've been showing them prison break because it's like my favorite show of all time. I love that show. Oh, I never watched that. I always thought it looked good, but I never watched that. It is so incredibly smart. Like just the character development, the sequence of events, how shit goes down, how things play out is just, it, it's really cool. I think that you would dig it. Um, I probably would. It, it's on Netflix, isn't it? It's on Hulu. Oh, okay. I've got, well, I've got Hulu. I've been, I've been watching probably, I would guess, one of the shows that would probably be a polar opposite to that because it's not smart. It's stupid, but it's funny. But my wife, she would occasionally go work down in La Crosse, Wisconsin for like a week at a time. So she'd stay at a hotel and she started watching Shameless uh, once she was staying down there. <laughs> So I started watching that and I, she's, I think she's on season three or four and she's been watching it with me. I just got into the second season and man, that show is something else. <laughs> yeah. I've heard, I've never watched it, but I've heard. So. Oh man. It is. Uh, I mean, it's funny. It's meant to be, I think a funny show, but then there's like, it has its moments where it's like, it's serious. Like it's good. Um, my God. <laughs> I don't know. Like, you know who William H. Macy is? He was in, I think, Jurassic Park 3. Oh, yeah. I don't know. He's been in, he's been in other shit, too. But he is... Like, the show takes place in Chicago. And it's... I mean, he's a piece of shit dad. And he's got five kids. And his oldest daughter is taking care of these kids in this house. And he just... All he does is get drunk and, like, pass out in the street, basically. And get into these other shenanigans and stuff. And it's pretty wild. But like I said, I mean, it's more than just... I, I guess I would classify it as like a dramedy type show. It's like a right. drama comedy. It's pretty good. Okay. All right. Would not, would not, would not show your kids at all. For sure. <laughs> yeah. No. All right. Well, maybe, I mean, I've been curious about it, but maybe I'll take the plunge. I think it would be in your like realm of humor. Okay. All right. I'll take it. Sounds good, sir. Well, have a good night, man. Well, uh, I'll, I'll probably text you tomorrow when I'm reading this chapter. All right. Sounds good, man. I'll uh, I'll be around. All right. Have a good night. Take care, dude. See ya. Bye.
Jay's epic quest. Jay's epic quest. Jay's epic quest. Jay's epic quest. Jay's epic quest.